0: Let's look at Revelation chapter 5 together. If you need a reminder, given that we've been away from Revelation for a good portion because of COVID, as we turn to the very beginning of this book, we find that this book of Revelation, the last book of our Bible, has to do with future events that must take place. Place. The first verse of the book says the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. This book tells us about future necessary events. And what, is, what are those events that must take place well, this phrase comes up in the book of Daniel in particular, and it points us directly to the establishment of God's kingdom on the earth. That is what must happen. Many people think that many things ought to happen. Some people think about this person in charge, or this to be the temperature of the earth, and all kinds of things that people want. But what actually must take place, it is that God's kingdom must be established. And as we come to chapter 5, we find ourselves in the second act, if you would, of this drama of the establishment of God's kingdom. We know it's the second part of the story because John has given us markers that that mark the divisions of this book. And that marker is in the spirit. We see it in chapter 1, verse 10. We see it in chapter 4, verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, that is to say, he was in that state of consciousness where he as a prophet was receiving divine revelation. And that phrase, in the Spirit, divides the book into four major visions that tell the story of the Lamb's conquest. And it does so because the Lamb's conquest is the paradigm for the saints' conquest, for our conquest. In the first portion of the book, uh, verses 1, 9 through 322, that is where Christ is addressing the churches and where we find there's a conflict between the church and the world, between the church and the devil, between good and evil, to say it Broadly. That set the stage now for the conquest of the Lamb. The conquest of the Lamb is what takes up the major portion of this book. So for those of you who like a story of one who comes and conquers, this is it. That story is told to us in chapters 4 through 16, the second vision. So today, that's where we find ourselves in the study of the book of Revelation. Chapter 4, we turn to the second act. It brought us into heaven to see the Father seated on the throne. Now we turn to chapter 5, where we see something else. This is where we learn that Jesus will reclaim the earth. And what we'll see is that the Savior is going to take the scroll from the sovereign. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, let's give ourselves to God's word, and we'll go to the Lord in prayer to ask for his help to do so. Lord, help us as we study your word. You say it's a lamp and a light. And we pray that it would illumine our hearts and would guide us today and the days before us that you allow us to have in Jesus' name. Amen. Since this is 2020, this is an election year in the United States of America. And for some time now, candidates have and will be contending for our vote and come November, we will cast our votes and soon after we'll learn who the next president of the United States will be. And I say will be because when a president is elected, he is not immediately the acting president. You see, it's a couple months later in January that the elected president becomes the acting president. And I bring this point up to highlight there is a period of waiting... From November 3rd to January 20th. And while I cannot put a date on it, there is a period of waiting in the plan of God for the world. He made it before he created the world. We know that God created the world less than 10,000 years ago, and when he did so, it was all good. But then sin entered, and death by sin. We know, according to God's word, that in the fullness of time, God sent his Son to redeem the world by his blood from their sin. Three days after he died, Jesus arose. And after 40 days, he returned to heaven where he was seated at the Father's right hand. We just studied that as we had Pentecost. And we know that Jesus was exalted to the Father's right hand because he sent the Spirit to indwell us as he promised. And it is through the Spirit that Christ is ruling in his church for his glory. That's God's plan. But God's plan for mankind upon the earth is not yet complete. There is a kingdom to come. This is not it. We are not in eternity. There is something to come. The question is, how is that kingdom going to come? As we look at Revelation 5, we learn that Jesus is going to set in motion the Father's plan to reclaim the earth. And while he has already sat down with the Father on his throne, you say, how do we know that? Revelation taught us that. Turn back a page to chapter 3, verse 21. Jesus says, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Last chapter chapter 4 was the father on his throne. Now the attention turns to Christ. The one who has sat down on the throne. You say what is he what is he doing? Well, there's been a period of waiting. You recall that Jesus ascended to heaven and he was he was covered by the cloud. We are told that he is seated at the Father's right hand and that where is where he is currently. And he is waiting there. You say, what is he waiting for? There's a passage that is quoted many, many times in the New Testament. It's Psalm 110, verse 1. It says this. The Father says to the Son, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. Right now... We are in the period of until, until. For God's kingdom to come, his enemies must be put down. When's that going to happen? Well, Revelation 5 begins to unfold that drama. This passage has two portions. It's divided at verse 8. In the first seven verses, they show us, This scene of claiming the scroll, it's summarized in verse 8 where it says when he had taken the scroll. The first seven verses are about taking the scroll. The second verses, which are verses 8 through 14, is the response of worship. I believe we're only going to be able to accomplish the first portion of this today. Verses 1 through 7, Jesus has the right to reclaim the earth as his possession. We know that because the Savior takes the scroll from the sovereign. As we open up, This chapter, we see that the scroll was in the sovereign's hand. The scroll was in the sovereign's hand. Let's read about it in verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. The fact that this one is seated on the throne is the reason I refer to him as the sovereign, because a sovereign, a king, sits on a throne. I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back. That means it's, it's completely filled up, sealed with seven seals. So the Father has a scroll, and there are a lot of opinions about what this scroll is beyond the fact that it is written on and that it is sealed up. Let me mention a few of them for you. Some people think it's the Lamb's Book of Life. Others think it's God's plan for all human history. Or it's God's plan of redemption and judgment. Or it's the new covenant inheritance. Or it's the Old Testament. Or it's a book containing the events of the great tribulation. Or it's a testament. Or it's a title deed. You might say, why are there so many opinions? That's a lot. Well, there's a simple answer for that. This scroll has writing within and without, but the writing is never read to us in this book of Revelation. We never have anyone say, this this is what it says on the scroll. So, how do we decide what this scroll is? Well, the way you do that is you keep reading, and you piece together what you find. Say, so, well, you keep reading, you keep studying. That sounds like a lot of work. Should we give ourselves to that on a Sunday morning with all of us gathered here? Absolutely. If you look through this chapter, you'll notice that this scroll is referred to seven times. You can highlight them, you can mark them, you can circle them in your Bible so you remember how important this scroll is. And then look how the next chapter begins, chapter six, verse one. I watched when the oh, lion. Uh, I'm sorry. I watched when the land. Lamb opened one of the seven seals. The seals of what? The seals of the scroll. Turn to chapter 8, verse 1. It says this, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal. The seal of what? The seal of the scroll. You see, as you go through this book, you'll find that the plot of the book of Revelation is going to advance in relation to this scroll. It's extremely important. question is, what is? Is it? Well, let's turn back to chapter 6, and let's just see what happens when the seals are broken. Chapter 6, verse 1. I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud, with a voice like thunder, Come, and I looked, and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown and was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. The result of the first seal being broken was conquest. Verses 3 and 4, we have the second seal. And the result of the second seal being broken is warfare. You see the last word of verse 4, a sword. Verses 5 and 6, the third seal is opened. And the result of that is famine. Then in verses 7 and 8, you see the fourth Open And the result of that is that a quarter of the population is killed. You look at verses 9 and 10, and you find a call to avenge those who were martyred. You look at verses 12 through 14, and the next seal is broken, which ends up causing cataclysmic events. Then you turn forward to chapter 8, verse 1, that we read with the seventh seal, and we find Silence and seven trumpets are given to seven angels. As we go through the book, those trumpets will sound, the last of which introduces seven bulls that are to be poured out. Say, Why did we go through all of that? Here's the point. We have to observe that when the seals are broken, things happen. Here's the point. The contents of the scroll aren't simply read. They're released. They're released. And this point needs to get our attention because that's not typically happen that doesn't typically happen when you read. It's not like you have a bedtime story and you read once upon a time there was a prince in a castle, and all of a sudden a prince and a castle appear. That's not normal. But when the seals of this scroll are broken, things happen. Well, let's ask another question. Where are these things happening? As you trace through chapter 6, it becomes clear where these things are happening. Verse 4, 8, 10, 13, 15, and more as the book goes on, we find out these events are impacting the earth. Chapters 4 and 5 are in heaven, but what happens when the scroll is the seals of the scroll are broken? impacts the earth another question is there any description of these events that is summarized in these chapters there is look at the end of verse of chapter 16 the end of chapter 16 verse 16 and 17 the world leaders call to the mountains and rocks and they they say this fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day Of their wrath has come. So the stuff that is in this scroll is summarized as God's wrath. One last question. What is the effect of these events? What happens in the end? Because that's going to show us a bit of what's in that scroll, too. You can turn to chapter 11, verse 15. This is the seventh angel blowing his trumpet. There's a loud voice in heaven. It says this, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. You see, the result of this scroll being unsealed is the establishment of a kingdom on earth that was not previously the case. That kingdom has become the kingdom of our Lord. So let's boil it down. What is this scroll? This scroll seems to be the title deed to the earth because it's related to the earth. Negatively, it impacts those who dwell upon the earth, those who are usurpers or those who are squatters. They receive God's judgment, his woe, but positively, this scroll establishes God's kingdom on the earth. When the seals of the scroll removed, the earth is reclaimed. Heaven's dominion comes to earth. That's the content of the scroll that is in the hand of the Father. Verse 1 of chapter 5 says this I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, it's in his hand. The sealed scroll was in his right hand. The right hand is the place of power. Exodus 15, 6 says, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. So obviously, no one is going to have the power to take this away from him who has it in his right hand. But having the scroll in his hand is not only to say that it's in a place of power, but is, is in a place of prominence. What, what do you mean? By having it in his hand... He is drawing attention to it. He is drawing attention to his plan to establish his kingdom on the earth. You see, God can do whatever he wants. And he can sit on his throne with or without anything in his hand. And the fact that he chooses to have something in his hand draws attention to it see, what's in your hand communicates something. If what's in your hand is a set of car keys, it probably shows that you're about ready to go drive somewhere. If what is in your hand is a pen and an open Bible at church, it probably communicates the fact that you're trying to hear what you're being taught and you're trying to remember what you're being taught by writing something down. If what's in your hand is a cell phone, it probably shows that you are somewhere else. What is in your hand communicates things. And by the scroll being in the sovereign's hands, communicates his interest in his plan to establish his kingdom. And in doing so, all those who surround his throne are taking a notice of what he is drawing attention to. They see it in his hand. But there's an issue, and it has to do with the condition of the scroll. It's sealed. You say, why are things sealed? That's not a hard question. Things are sealed because the right person needs to open them. You and I do this all the time. We rewrite let, a letter, we seal an envelope, we put it in the mail, and we expect that the appropriate recipient will receive it and open it. And that's the expectation of the sovereign. He's holding it, not opening it himself because he expects that someone else is going to open it. See, the sovereign needs someone worthy to accomplish his plan. That's what we learn in verses 2 through 4. The sovereign needs someone worthy to accomplish his plan. And the angel calls for one to open the scroll. Look at verse 2. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice. There's a threefold showing there of great strength here. Proclaiming. This is what he proclaims. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? His proclamation is a question. Why do we ask questions? We ask questions because we want people to focus on a subject at hand. And by this question, the angel is fixing all of heaven upon one subject. And we have to figure out what is that subject? Well, God the Father is drawing attention in verse 1 to the scroll, but there is an advance in verse 2. It's not simply to the scroll, but the angel draws attention to the opening of the scroll, which would release its contents, which is going to take place in the following chapters. And I say it's important that it is to the opening of the scroll because we see the the term open in verse 2, 3, 4, 5, 9, and 12 in this chapter. To open the scroll is to execute its contents. And that is the focus that the angel is going for by asking this question. Who is worthy to open the scroll? Who is worthy to accomplish God's plan to establish his kingdom? There's the all-important question that is asked in heaven. Now allow me to ask one more question in addition to why people ask questions. Why is it that this angel asked the question? Why did the angel do it? I'll put it another way. Was this angel a rogue angel disrupting the heavenly court when it asked this question? Like a person who just stands up and disrupts the service. Is that what is happening here? Well, no. We know that angels are God's ministers. They serve God. So why is the angel asking this question? Because God must have instructed the angel to do so. Think back for a second. The angels announced the birth of Jesus Christ. Why? Because God wanted people to know about the one who would save them from their sins. God sent the angels so that the people would know about the birth of Jesus Christ. And now an angel asks a question because God wants all to take notice of who is worthy to accomplish his plan. Verse 3. Well, who is worthy? Verse 3. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. So no one in all creation is found worthy to accomplish this plan of God. And notice the connection. No one is worthy because no one is able. Why? Why? We don't know. We're not told here, but we'll, we'll find a little bit more out later. But consider what it must have been like for this question to be asked, and there is no answer. No one steps forward. That is to say this. It seems that those in heaven seem to understand the significance of the scroll and what it means to break its seals and to execute its contents. It's kind of a sort of A sword in the stone. You all remember that story or the movie? A sword in the uh, the stone that all know about, but they know better than to step forward and give it a try. Here is the scroll in the hand of the sovereign. No one's able to take it and to open it. Here's the question then. If no one steps forward, how is God's kingdom going to come? And John felt the impact of that. How can God's kingdom come if no one can open the scroll, if no one can execute God's plan? Verse four, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So John wept at this dilemma. Is he just being irrational? Is he particularly melancholy? No. Sure, there are times that We can't find something, and we're just annoyed by it. But there are other times we can't find something, and we are moved to tears. Imagine being at the altar and not being able to find your ring. Imagine being a parent and not being able to find a child. You will be moved to tears. But imagine, imagine, the prospect of the promises of God going unfulfilled because there's no one able to accomplish God's plan to establish his kingdom. Imagine that. Imagine that there is no heaven to come. There is no second coming. There is no future. There is no eternal life. Imagine if that plan can't be worked out. So John wept. But the scene shifts now in a positive direction as the scroll is taken From the sovereign's hands. Verses 5 through 7. Because one is worthy to accomplish the sovereign's plan. Look at verse 5. It says this, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. You see, while none in all creation was found to take the scroll, there seems to be an understanding that there is one who is worthy. One person can. And one of the 24 elders lets John know what he seemingly didn't know before. And he relates to John that there's one person qualified to open the scroll because he has conquered. It is his conquest that qualifies him to open the scroll. Who is that? Who has conquered? We've been going through chapters 2 and 3, and we've heard the churches of Asia called to overcome and to conquer again and again and again. But we saw in chapter 3, verse 21, that there was one who has already conquered. It says this, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered, and sat down on my father's on his throne. You see, Christ has conquered, but we need to take notice of how he's described by the elder. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the root of David. You know, those descriptions are not chosen because of the fierceness of a lion or simply the lineage of Christ. We need to look at those. Those are important cross-references. I encourage you to circle them in the margin, and you, pro- you, you need to expand on them, okay? You need to write some extra verses in there because they don't include all the ones they should, okay? Let's turn to Genesis 49. Genesis 49, this is where we find the reference to the lion of the tribe of Judah. I read to you beginning in verse 8. Genesis 49, verse 8, it says this. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's club. So what do we learn about Judah? First, Judah will be praised. Your brothers will praise you. And he will be preeminent. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Those of your family, those of Israel, will bow to you. You will be preeminent. Well, how is that? How is the one of Judah going to be preeminent. Look at verse 10, which ought to be in your margin. And I read from the NIV, partly because of its literal rendering of this verse. Genesis 49, verse 10, the scepter will not depart from Judah. Scepter, who holds the scepter? The king. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come. He whose right it is comes, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. You see, Judah will reign as king, how long? Forever. The scepter will not depart from Judah. Why? Because it's his right to rule. It's the right that belongs to him. So the Lion of Judah is a ruler who receives praise from Israel. That's what we learn in Genesis 49. That's the reference that, that's the, that's the object that we ought to think about when the elder speaks of it in Revelation 5. Jesus is also called the root of David. This is Isaiah chapter 11. Turn to Isaiah then. Isaiah, first of the writing prophets. Turn to chapter 11 where we find the text for one of our most beautiful Christmas carols when we sing, Lo, how a rose ere bloomin' Isaiah 11, verse 1, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. Verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Verse 3, His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees or decide disputes by what he hears. In other words, his judgment isn't going to be superficial. But with righteousness he'll judge the poor and decide with equity the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with a rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill wicked. How many people are able to speak and things like this happen? Some voices can shatter glass, but this is far beyond that. As we look at verses 6 through 8, he will effect an Eden-like utopia upon the earth. But our attention needs to come to verse 10. In particular, it says this, again from the NIV. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people. The nations, the Gentiles will rally to him. So this descendant of David is going to be what kind of person? He'll be a ruler, the kind of ruler that even the Gentiles will submit to. So who is worthy to execute God's plan to establish the kingdom over all the earth? The one who has universal authority, the one who is the Lion of Judah, who is the root of David. Those are titles that point to authority over all Israel and over all the nations. That's the one who's qualified. Who's worthy? It's the Savior who is worthy to accomplish the sovereign's plan. Look at verse 6. In between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, reference to the Holy Spirit, sent out into all the earth. So John hears from the elder. And then he sees the slaughtered lamb standing. What a strange sight. A lamb that bears the marks of death. That would be the prince of the nails. Yet the lamb is standing. He is alive. And the seven horns point to his omnipotence. The horn is is the emblem of strength of an animal. It's its power. And this lamb is not meek and mild. It is powerful seven eyes point to his omniscience. This is the Lord Jesus Christ portrayed as the powerful, all-knowing Savior. And it is the Lamb who takes the scroll, verse 7. He went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So many years ago, in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was sent to earth to redeem. How did he do so? So many years ago, he came to die for sin, for our sin, in our place. He took the cup of the Father's wrath, and now he takes the scroll from the Father's hand. As he did the Father's will then, he does the Father's will now. Now being when it takes place. The United States of America, the, the president waits from November 3rd to January 20th. He waits to become the acting president of the United States. And as we read of God's plan for the world, we realize that the Son is presently sitting at the right hand of the Father. And there he's waiting. He's waiting. And the sovereign has a sealed scroll in his hand. And one day, one day, he will instruct an angel to ask a very important question that will reverberate through the halls of heaven. And it is then that the Savior will take the scroll from the sovereign and execute its contents. He will do the Father's will. Before it was to save sinners like you and me, And then it will be to reclaim the earth and establish his kingdom. Lord, we are so thankful to have an opportunity to understand what will be. You don't have to tell us the future. You don't have to explain to us the past, nor our situation, nor yourself, but you've chosen to. You've been so gracious to us to provide salvation in Jesus Christ alone. And here we get a glimpse into Christ, the one who is the Son, who not only died for our sins, but who will one day come and conquer and reclaim the earth. At every point, he submits himself to the Father's will, and he conquers. How glorious and how exemplary as we are called to conquer and to overcome. Father, we pray for your grace to do so. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.